I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, half as well, well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. We are in it. We're in the deeps. We just got to the Feanor chapters. I mean, for me, that's the deeps. Yeah. And I just want to say from the offset, if you are anti-Feanor, <laughs> if you are pro-Manway, maybe now is a good time to turn the podcast off. Oh, okay. Or open your mind a little. <laughs> It stop being such a fucking nerd. I, I think this is just a good time for us to to reveal that this is a very pro Feanor podcast. If that wasn't obvious already. Not that we're not Feanor critical. No, I think there's nothing wrong with acknowledging Feanor has flaws. But if you can't acknowledge that he's fucking awesome. I mean. I don't know what to tell you. Get the fuck out of here. You know. Yeah, definitely. Um, also, the expletives might be flying a little... Uh, more tonight. So there are some times that William and I drink while we're recording a, a yeah. podcast. We we enjoy a beverage of an adult alcoholic nature. Um, but tonight, um, we've already had one at least. <laughs> we, so yeah, you know, and and uh, we've had a day. We, we could put it like that. It was a long day. It was a long day. Um, so, but uh, you're. But we're hoping that our fiery nature is, um, you and know, our fiery whiskey drinks is is very in honor of Fanor, the spirit of fire himself. Exactly. So, as a reminder, we were reading chapter five of Eldamar to chapter nine of the Flight of the Noldor of the Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien, and. This part of the story is pretty lit. You know, last last episode, we were kind of uh, struggling with the, the dryness. Well, I think it starts off pretty great with the Ainulindale. And yeah, like absolutely. the creation myth of this world. And then it gets into the Valaquinta, all the gods of this world. Um, I think those are really great prologue material. It's nice. I just wish the other couple chapters were also included in that <laughs> prologue material. yeah. If I could turn the Silmarillion into not just a book, but a book series, I think all this stuff with Feanor in the beginning and maybe the next few chapters as well. For next week. Yeah, would be like book one. Okay. Um, and probably start with Of Eldemar. Gotcha. Um, it's just that, you know, Tolkien has to explain how the world came to be and how the Valar came to be in the West and then how the elves... Awoke in the east, but came to the west. Well, he's got to make a reason for all of the names. And then again, there's all these subdivisions of elves, which come with lots of names, which Tolkien was trying to get at. So we have to explain how they got into all these subdivisions. And so there's lots of uh, stories about migration patterns, (laughs) uh, which I think is interesting to go back to. But um, this chapter really kind of gets to where all the elves are settled to where they need to be to actually begin the story. Yeah. Um, the the players are set. Yeah. We are ready to see what is actually the the heart of this this epic. Yeah. But even here, there's still a little bit of laying the scene that I want to talk about <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Uh, it's a cult of Eldamar and the princes of the Noldor. And Eldamar means elven home. Eldamar are the lands in the Undying Lands where the elves live. Because remember, the Undying Lands are for the Valar and the Maiar as well. All the Undying races. Right. But Eldmar is specifically where the elves live. 
And it includes a few different areas. Well, there is the Bay of Eldamar, which is this bay off the shores of Amon. And in there is the island of Tol Arisea, which is where the Teleri and the Sea Elves live. This is the island that was used to ferry across the elves across the sea to get them to the Undying Lands. And it's actually rooted in the Bay of Eldamar because Alma was just like, oh, these Sea Elves, these Teleri, uh, I actually know what they want better. They want to like maybe not be totally in the light of the two trees. They still want to see the starlight. They still want to hear the waves. And um, so maybe they won't come all the way. But the Noldor and the Vanyar have already gone on ahead of them. The Vanyar, like I said, you don't really need to worry about them. They have moved to living at the feet of Manway, singing his praises for all eternity. And that's kind of their role. Mm-hmm. The Noldor, um, I think it's very fitting. They live in what's called the Calicuria, the Pass of Light. Because we know that the eastern border of Amon is the Pelori Mountains, which fence in the light of Valinor, which is not going out into the outside world. But the gods actually open this pass. They make this big ravine in the Pelori Mountains called the Calicuria. It's this big valley or ravine. And in the middle of that is raised the elven city of Tyrion. And this is where the Noldor live. And I think it's very fitting because they kind of want to bathe in the light of the two trees, but they also want to have access to those outer starlit shores where the Teleri live. I think a major theme with the Noldor, including those that go later to Middle-earth, is that they kind of want the best of both worlds. Um, They want these free lands in Middle-earth and the lands outside of Valinor. They want their cake and to eat it too. Well, I I love that you use that quote because Tolkien uses a similar quote to describe the Noldor in the Second Age where he says, they wanted their cake without eating it. Ooh. Um... (laughs) It's like they kind of wanted Valinor, but, you know, Valinor can only truly exist in Valinor um, outside of their reach. So as long as they cling to Middle-earth, you know, they're never going to be happy. And so, yeah, so the elves are living in this great big valley where, like, on one side they have the light of the two trees bathing their city. On the other side, it leads out to the Bay of Eldamar and the Lonely Isle. And these are, at this point, starlit shores. And actually, the first picture that Amazon released for their show, The Rings of Power, was this scene of an elf looking at this magnificent city. And in the distance, you can see actually the two trees. And this city is Tyrion. This is the capital of the Noldor. You can see on the sides that they are in the midst of this great valley with these huge walls reaching up on either side. So this picture is actually set inside the Calicuria, the Pass of Light. And the character we actually know is Finrod, Galadriel's brother, who we meet in this chapter. And so his back is to the Bay of Eldamar and Tol Arisea. And yeah, all you really need to know at this point is that the Noldor live in Tyrion and the Teleri live either on Tol Arisea or their haven port of Alqualande, which is on the shores of Amman. I recommend uh, checking out the Atlas of Middle-Earth book if you've never read it before or seen it because uh, there's actually no map of Valinor or the Undying Lands in any of these books. And it can be kind of hard to conceptualize. So I actually 
really recommend checking that out because it can help you with the geography, which I think makes reading it easier. It's really hard to tune out if you just don't know where any of this is supposed to be. Especially these kind of like setting the scene chapters. Yeah. It's it's literally, I, I was like very lost. And then you, you whipped out this book full of maps and I was like, and like, oh, I honestly okay, think the maps shouldn't easier. Honestly, I don't even think the maps should be at the end of the book. They're not even there. I think they should be in the chapter. Yeah, um, no, it, it it's definitely more of a geography lesson than yeah anything else. But again, all you need to know, Tyr- the city of Tyrion, that's the Noldor home city. The Teleri live on the outside of the Plori Mountains in the Bay of Eldemar, whether in Alqualande or on the Lonely Isle. But we're introduced to a lot of characters in this chapter. And again... I think there's just this thing you need to do where you only focus on the important characters at the time. Let me tell you the characters I've focused on. Yeah. Finrod, Fingolfin, Feanor. And those are the only names. Perfect. Right in my head that I can like pull out. That's what I was going to tell you. Other than that, maybe Finway. Finway. Their father. And and then, you know, the Val, like Manway. And yeah. like all the Valar. Yeah. I, I, um, I, feel, I feel like... It's really easy for me to grasp the Valar because they're so individualized and unique. And I think also I just, the Ainu Lindelay and the um, Valaquenta are just great reference sources. And I love how separate they are from the rest yeah, of it. So it, it, like, it, it already very, preps you for it. It feels very much like a reference yeah. part of the book rather than, you know, a narrative part of the book. Right. Yeah. And I think it should. So there's a lot of names here, and I, I like that you already differentiated it into Feanor, Fingolfin, and Finrod. Um, even though, I mean, we're we're introduced to Finway and his three sons, Feanor, Fingolfin, and Finarfin. Finrod is Finarfin's eldest child. Yeah, it's confusing. <laughs> I literally, yeah, when it, it's easier to read than it is to hear. You just hear all these fins and you're like, tune out. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so here's the thing. Um, while Finorfin is not a very important character, he, as we will see, soon see, he turns back from the journey and his children go on. And so from there on, yeah, Finrod is the most important character. But Finrod represents the house of Finorfin. And going forward with all these princes of the Noldor that we learn in this chapter, I think it helps to filter all these characters through which of the three brothers did they come from. Okay. Um, we are told in this chapter that Feanor was very prideful. Fingolfin was the most valiant. And Finarfin is always associated with wisdom and fairness. So again, I think these traits transfer down to their children. Yeah. So later on in the story, we will get into all their children. Gotcha. So, so it's, it's, these are the, because we had, you know, three before this, right? Like, weren't there three tribes of elves, tribes of elves, elves before yeah. we reached these three. Brothers. Yeah. And they all have their own distinctive traits. Right. So it's like, but these are the three Noldorian brothers. Exactly. And you see, it wouldn't have been an issue if Finway wasn't killed. Sure. Because now you have this division into these three houses. We're getting so ahead of ourselves. We are. Um, but. But 
it, it is important to note that like yeah. this is the this is the generation of Noldor that we need to be paying attention to for the whole right. rest of Again, the Again, there's no one protagonist of the story. It's a story of a family throughout generations. Right. So right now we're just focusing on the sons of Fenway. Sure. Um, later we will focus on their sons. Yeah. And like I said, I think it helps to, even though Finarfin isn't a big part of the story, I think it helps to see Finarfin in these chapters being the peace mediator between the brothers Fingolfin and Feanor. Because Finrod, Finarfin's son, when he goes to Middle-earth, will go on to play that role that his father did amongst the cousins. I'm just laughing because it literally, I know it makes so much sense to you, but when you, when you talk no, about it with such it fluidity, it, it is absolutely beyond. Um, and well, I mean, there's, there's two sets of brothers. It's and almost like sons. we should call them like Rod, nor <laughs> like. No, exactly. It's like, yeah. like honestly, that's kind of how I learned these characters is I had to ignore the prefix Finn. Yeah, because they all come very from confusing. the patriarch Finway. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I think that's the best way to learn um, Fingon and Turgon as brothers is gotcha. because their last part is gone. Yeah. Ignore the Finn, you know, and whatever. Um, yeah. Okay, we're, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're getting into linguistics. Let, let's... Let's ignore the linguistics, even though that's what Tolkien would have loved for Again, us to... Again, yeah. I just wanted to make that note, though, that always associate the House of Feanor with pride, the House of Fingolfin with valor, and the House of Finarfin with wisdom. Gotcha. Going forward, that's all you need to know. Sure. So now we have all the Noldor and all the, uh, all the Valinor elves, essentially, where they're supposed to be. We've gone through all of these uh, princes and princesses. And again, we don't need to know all of them right now. And that leads us into the next chapter of Feanor and the Unchaining of Melkor. Let me just like summarize it for all of you people who do not want to deal with the intensity of this text. Feanor was the hottest elf who ever lived. The end. That's it. That's all you need to know. I mean, his name literally means spirit of fire. He was red hot. Scorching. Scorching. <laughs> to um, a fault. Fanor is my dream. Uh, like, character. Just, I know he's not I'm, not, I'm not here to say he was a good guy. In fact, I'm here to say he was, like, a pretty complicated dude. Yeah. He is my dream character. He's perfect. I would say of all his uh, Luciferian characters, which I would include Melkor, Sauron, Fanor. Fanor is my favorite. Oh my god. Fanor <laughs> takes the things that are like really intriguing about Melkor and intriguing about Sauron. And mostly, hum- mostly humanizes at their, it. Yeah, mostly almost. at their like very beginning stages and then like humanizes it and makes it very tangible. Yeah. And um, well, it makes like some of Melkor and Sauron's evil more sympathetic to an extent. It's like if they went down the same path that Fanor is kind of going, it's like... These are just the most misunderstood artists of all time. Absolutely. And they're so powerful, right? And like just, these are our uniquely empowered beings that we're talking about. Yeah. And that's their downfall is yeah. that they have these gifts, which like tempt them to be greater than they actually are. I, I mean, as a, uh, as a former gifted kid, gifted student with a, <laughs> Who experienced burnout like 100 percent chip on their shoulder yeah <laughs> totally. like i totally relate to feanor um but 
Um, but let's talk about like Fanor's birth because I, I think I find that extremely in- interesting. Oh, and really important too, Absolutely. and and the events that follow it. Yeah. So his mother Muriel gives birth to him, and this is at a point when like elves can give birth to like a lot of children, and they're in the bliss of Valinor, and Finway was hoping to bring forth a lot of children. But so much of Muriel's spirit went forth into Feanor that she like kind of gave up the will to live. And she like goes off to rest, but basically dies. Yeah, she goes to the gardens of Lorien, the Vala of Dreams, and she lays down and her spirit departs and goes to the halls of Mandos like all elves do when they die. And uh, the image of Finway going to visit her body and until one day he just goes no more. Uh, that that was always very uh, heartbreaking to me. But he does kind of get over her. Oh, yeah, he does. He's and like, I need to have more kids. It's actually the first like real remarrying of an elf. Yeah. And it's kind of this point in history where it's looked at as like, maybe he shouldn't have done that. No, and I, I find this part in the text extremely interesting, especially considering... Tolkien's Catholicism, right? Yeah, um, which definitely does not, you know, acknowledge divorce, um, or you know, is very open minded to remarry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, this idea that this is the first time that that an elf kind of yeah uh, abandons their their first mating yeah. and moves on to a second mate um, to create more children. It's it's noted in the text that this is a mistake. <laughs> well, it's kind of ambiguous. So, like, it says that maybe Feanor's later actions would have been more restrained, mild. more mild. But they say, however, if he never remarried, Fingolfin and Finarfin never would have existed, right. and then their children too, and the world would have been diminished for that. Sure. So it is allowing this bit of uh, like maybe it was a good like who again Tolkien does this thing where I think a lot of people think he's on one side or the no, other. Yeah. And he's kind of like it's too big to judge. Right. And, and, and I think a lot of people think that Tolkien had a very specific like fuck Feanor and like <laughs> I love Fingolfin and it's just like. I don't think no, so. No I think he he says later of Feanor came their greatest woe and their greatest renown no i I think so yet again okay so this is something i've been playing with over the past week since we we you know got into the silmarillion yeah but my hot take screw this whole faramir being tolkien's self-insert character let me be real melkor is tolkien's self-insert character well when you read the history of middle earth and you just realize the unhinged genius but madness of Tolkien. It is like... I just think it's so significant that all of the creators in his world, all of the people who would ever potentially write books, you know, in his world, all fall. They're all super, super... They they all start off with the ability to do good. and But, like, they're granted this enormous ability to, like, create, or what (laughs) Tolkien calls sub-create. Because yeah. he believes only God can truly create. Right. We're all just sub-creators. Right. Um, but that, that power struggle, he acknowledges that power struggle. Between God and like whoever and you creator, are. And yeah. the sub-creator, 
I think that is so significant and pretty overlooked in I, I don't like, think it's talked about enough. No, yeah. I, I think this is such a, I, I mean, and for it, me, it's a very interesting part as a creator. <laughs> yeah, and like how this can drive you to either do great things like Aule and like pass on to new work and still be reverent to God or to become possessive of what you create until like you're, you go through this like stage down to what he describes Melkor as nihilistic madness. Well, and we literally see this even with like Bilbo and Frodo who are as removed as possible from what we're currently talking about in the Silmarillion. But, you know, they're writers. They are they're writing the Red Book of Westmark. Exactly. Which would become and, the Lord of the Rings. And as we see, and even Sam, you know, who, who takes up that writing, none of them have like not had their ups and downs with the powers I find this part of of the whole legendarium supremely interesting. I, I think it's a trend that definitely needs to be explored, and, and I'm sure we'll keep talking about it. Yeah, and well, what I like about the way Tolkien writes, especially the Silmarillion, is that he starts at the most removed spot, but also at the like largest themes that will be predominant throughout the rest of the story. But the other major thing that happens in this chapter is... You know, Melkor has been held in captivity since the Battle of the Valar, which they made on behalf of the elves. And now they're like willing to hear. It's like, do you have anything to say for yourself? And again, he sues for pardon. And Manway's kind of like, you know what? I believe him. <laughs> I think he's I think he's rehabilitated. I'll never understand it. Well, here here's the problem. This is what Tolkien says, is that Manway has no knowledge of evil. He simply cannot comprehend the duplicity that might exist in the world. Yeah, he couldn't understand that good has departed from Melkor forever. Which, like, cool. Understandable, but, like, fuck off. And... Oh, no. I think I would feel differently if there weren't any other Valar who... I mean, it's said that Tolkien and Almo are not really on board. That's what this. I mean, is like... But... Some people are kind of like... Yeah. Um... What are you talking about? This guy is like the big bad. And Almo already, I think, has been proven like right on a couple things yeah so i'm just like i trust his judgment better than manway i don't know why he's not the leader of the valar well i don't know manway knows most the mind of iluvatar so it's one of those things that like he knows a very singular and secluded part of the mind of iluvatar not the part that created melkor yeah i mean that is interesting because it is hinted that he knows kind of more than anyone else of the music and stuff but he has such a narrow view of Melkor and evil, which I find interesting. If he knows the most of Iluvatar's mind, shouldn't he also know the most of Melkor's like evil? But just because he knows the most of Iluvatar's mind, that doesn't mean he understands the difference between good and evil, right? If he is seeing the final picture of Iluvatar's creation, he doesn't give a shit about these specifics. He doesn't give a shit about the suffering of the elves at the hands of Melkor. He doesn't give a shit, right? Because yeah. he sees that final destination. And right. he, he knows that all 
working. He knows that no matter how evil there. Melkor is and the suffering that he does, great things will come of it. Right. So he's willing to allow it a little bit, but also it's like... It's sort of ridiculous. You could have just like... Not? <laughs> kept Melkor and Mandos and left the elves in Middle-earth. Right. And it would have been gravy. Right. Um... <sighs> But then we wouldn't have a story. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I keep going back to that as like, I, I hate Manway, but also without him and his folly, we wouldn't have a story. But also, I, I do love how fallible Tolkien makes the Valar. No, Again, absolutely. he makes it clear, Iluvatar is the god. These other beings are godlike, but they're maybe not as all-powerful as we have in past mythologies given this pantheon credit for yeah, no, they, they are very elemental in the sense that they are kind of restricted to their purview and, and they can't really go beyond that. Yeah, I almost like sometimes have to think of the Valar as like uh, all just a part of a whole brain that can't fully function until they're all together. Well, now we're moving on to of the Silmarils and the unrest of the Noldor. Yeah. Um, which is really kind of the meat of this particular story. We find out that Feanor created the three Silmarils from the blended light of the two trees, thus preserving them in crystals imperishable. And it's indicated that he might have had some amount of foresight about what what might eventually happen to the trees. Knowing that something could happen to the trees, and if that happens, it would be good to have that light. Um, Which, all things considered, is probably his best deed. Yeah, definitely. Um... Because he was right. I mean, his best deed is being as hot as he is. Let me well, be real. Next to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he creates these three amazing jewels that are the pride of the undying lands. However, <laughs> Melkor is also free to go around uh, <sighs> telling lies about everyone and turning yeah. everyone against each other. Melkor. Three snake no in the good. Garden of Eden right now. Yeah, he's very. Um, it's not that he's like destroying, he's doing a bunch of just kind of like underhanded things. Yeah. The Valor aren't even aware of this. Yeah. Of course Um, they aren't. When they, when they hear about this, they think that it's just the Noldor are just shitty. Um, they're just (laughs) just like, how fucked up? Like, you know, that they're just like, ah, you know, these ones just bad apple. Couldn't have set a, set a bad apples. Couldn't be any divine influence from any yeah, of these gods. Again, exactly. we're almost said like, are you really going to bring them to the land of the gods? Right. Like, like let's let's talk about that just for a second. This was something we talked a lot about last episode. Was just the whole idea that like they capture Mel- Melkor and to save the elves from him, and then they bring the elves to Valinor, where yeah. Melkor is. Yeah, and then they eventually let Melkor go and to be free among the elves. Allow them around him. Yeah, it's it's really this kind of insane. This is the very thing you tried to prevent. Yeah. Um, again, they think Melkor's uh, rehabilitated. And it does seem like for a while he has been but because he's hiding his true intentions. Yeah. Because remember, he is the wisest and most powerful of all the Valar. Right, which is really... So he is aiding them during this time and giving them a lot of his knowledge that they didn't have. Yeah, he's helping them out a lot, which I I think, I I wish he had wrote more More. about that because... He just um, tells us that he did. I'd love to know more about like the nature of that kind of help and and, and what the other Valar were thinking of um, 
Melkor at this yeah, time. Yeah, we, we know Tolkis and Olmo never quite trusted him, but... It sounds like everyone else was like, oh, okay. Maybe he did turn You've over You've learned your leaf. lesson, yeah. you know? Um, and, but anyway, but he's, like, basically telling all the Noldor how to, like, make arms, like, swords and stuff. And he's telling Feanor that your younger half-brother, Fingolfin, is seeking to usurp you. And he's telling Fingolfin that, like, Feanor is just acting out of pocket and, like, trying to, like, he's going to try to oust you. And and I think this part's very interesting because even though Feanor, like, hates Melkor, like, even now, just, like, is like, I, I just don't get your whole deal, man. Um, Again, I'd say one of Feanor's more admirable traits absolutely. is he can see through Melkor's bullshit. Well, because he's he's of the same cloth. <laughs> That's very true. Um, but he sees him for what he is. But these whisperings take hold within his people. And, and it makes its way back to Feanor. Um, and he believes it, yeah. which is, is I think, just a testament to Melkor's power, you yeah. know? And while I love the quote, especially related to farming, is um, they say that he that sows lies shall not lack of a harvest. Mm. You know, that's what Melkor is doing here. He's like, he's just sowing these seeds of lies and letting the Noldor go around telling the lies. Um and letting the Noldor bring them to fruit. Yeah. But he himself is like, he's like, I've done my work. I'm standing back and letting this play out. Um, And so, yeah, we see Fingolfin then go to his father, Finway, and be like, Father, like, you're the one that led us to the Undying Lands. And now your own eldest son is saying we should leave. Right. Um, Please restrain him if you don't repent of what you used to say. And then Feanor sees this and he's just like, oh, so I see Melkor. You, you're right. He, you yeah. are trying to take over. And so he draws a sword on his own half-brother and threatens his life. Which is like the first case of that. Yeah, we need to keep in mind, like, we're living in bliss and perfect harmony. A big section of these elves have just been worshipping at the feet of the Valar just like in bliss. Yeah, I mean, like, sin itself hasn't really existed yet. Yeah. Um, Threats haven't really existed yet. So this is a big deal. And the Valar are quick to blame Fanor. Leave it up to my buddy Fanor to, like... he He's a real trendsetter. Let's just put him that way. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I'll give you that. But they quickly find out that Feanor was just listening to Melkor, and Melkor is the real reason for this violence. Right. And and I do commend the Valor on their kind of swift investigation of the situation and realization that Melkor cannot be around the elves. Yeah, he's the mover of all this discontent. But this is when Melkor kind of just goes AWOL, and they can't find him. Yeah. He kind of... Uh, doesn't take a form. He's just kind of a storm cloud wandering here and there. Dude, this is still such a fan. You know, I, I just cool. like the Dark Boys. Yeah. I like the Dark Boys in the stories. And this takes us pretty nice into our next chapter of the Darkening of Valinor, where Melkor goes down south to these dark, forgotten regions where the creature Ungoliant lives. Ooh. Ungoliant. I'm sorry, but I know she's bad. She's a baddie. She's a bad bitch. Oh, I love Ungoliant. So while we were reading Two Towers, 
um, I stumbled across a few analyses of Shelob, who is a child of Ungoliant and right. very similarly spider. Mm. Um, takes a, a spider-like form. And there was a ton of like literature written about how Shelob is this representation of like the feminine, the wild feminine sexuality. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, Ungoliant, of course, is kind of the upper level of, of yeah. that representation. I mean, um, well, Shelob is literally killed from like hoisting her haunches down on this a piercing sword. blade. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's very like, okay. Yeah, exactly. And like they even talked about like vagina dentata, like the idea of like a many teeth vagina, like the legs of a of a spider. There's yeah. like a lot of, uh, uh, it's really interesting, you know. If, no, if yeah. I think any that's of our listeners want to Definitely delve. worth diving into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and I've talked at length about how much I, just fucking love monster spiders. Yeah. I, I think they are so spooky and I And well I I think if Melkor is this early primeval like male dark yes. figure, then Ungoliant is the early female like Yeah. Dark and she's creature. she's not originally a spider, but she does take that form. Says she takes spider form. Yeah. Um Yeah, there are a lot of People saying, you know, like, what is Ungoliant and, uh, like, in the lore. I personally don't see anything that seems to um, preclude her from being one of the Ainur. Right. Um, I think a lot of people take issue with that. I personally don't. Well, what, what, well she's what of the Void, but as you, when I mentioned that to you, you it's said. It's like they were all, like, of the Void at one point. Right, and yeah. And it says that she followed Melkor. In earlier days, and it says that Melkor in earlier days perverted a lot of the Ainur to his side. Right. I think that's like a direct reference. I don't know. To me, it seems pretty clear she's an evil Ainur. Well, it seems that like didn't, a... that didn't become a Balrog. I would like to describe the or beginning. Sauron. The beginning of time of Tolkien's world is very much like the, you know the sixties and seventies in the United States. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of shit going on. No one knows who's. Yeah. Doing well, I what. think it's interesting. I think a lot of people read what is told and they're like that's the end of it that's the end all be all and i don't think people realize how much in umbrella terms tolkien is talking with the einor it's like we literally have no idea how much of the einor there are it's yeah. not just like the ones that he talked about they're just the ones that are the most relevant to the story we right. actually don't know the whole breadth of them so he's only revealing the most important parts of the story, and sometimes even less than that. Well, and if he's the creator and we're to take that everything that Melkor does is still an act of Iluvatar, we can believe that there's a lot existing in that void of space right. and time. That and, and I think some people see Ungoliant, though, as something that is like not even in the thought of Iluvatar. She's like some extra dimensional... I mean, and I, I understand that for sure. I just don't think Tolkien was going quite that Lovecraftian... But I dig it. If I, I he love was. that idea, but I just don't think that fits in with his cosmology. I think either way, though, what's important about Ungoliant is that she is a void. No, and she's a void in spider. She's a black hole. She seeks to eat up all existence and all light. She hates light more than anything. I mean, and she's like a sentient black hole. Yeah, I um, I love her. I gotta say, yeah. big fan. Pretty cool. Um, big Lilith vibes. Yeah. And huge, huge fan. But yeah, Melkor 
convinces Ungoliant to come help him destroy the bliss of Valinor. Because if there's anything Melkor loves doing, it's destroying happiness. <laughs> and so during a time of festival in which uh, Fingolfin and Feanor are actually being reconciled for their previous uh, altercation, this is when Melkor decides to make his attack. And he stabs the two trees and... Ungoliant sucks out the light and poisons the two trees, essentially killing them. I mean, she's awesome. <laughs> I Like, I hate what she's doing. But she's awesome. It's like, go off, queen. Go off, queen. Um, and then they, they, they flee. And, um, and so now that everyone's super fucking bombed and they call Feanor there and they're like, hey, hey, Feanor, can we like have your Silmarils? To, like, relight the trees. Fuck off. Fuck all the way off. I am so on Feanor's side with this whole deal. This is one side where I'm almost on the Valar side a little bit. Go off. Well, because I think the point is, is, like, the light came from Yavanna. I understand. Feanor is, like, kind of acting like this came from him and him alone. And that's his folly, I think. It's, like... It truly did come from the gods. Listen, listen, here's here's my thing. Had the Valar nicely asked. Right, like. If you're you're the parent of something. And that something creates a great work. You don't just immediately lay claim to that great work, right? Even yeah. if it technically came from the loins that you own, whatever. Right. You ask nicely. Yeah. You, you give respect to the intelligence that actually put that creation forth. And this is one of the reasons why I love Owlay here. Tolkis, who we know is very hot-headed, he's very eager to like, just fuck Morgoth up or fuck Melkor up. He's like, hey, like Manway asked you a question. Answer him, dude. Like, this is Yavanna's tree. Like, these are gods asking you of this. Like, dude, like, answer. Because he's like, sure. at first, not answering. And Alloy is like, hold on. You ask something greater than you know of him absolutely and Owlay understands that because he is the like patron deity of the noldor and he has taught them all of the skill that they have and he himself has created the dwarfs he understands having this pride in this work you've created absolutely um and also having to get rid of it and like uh when he almost like thought he had to smite the dwarves so he understands more than anyone what feanor is going through and Feanor is just like, listen, like you said, like, there's only one thing that even the Valar might do in their lifetime. And like Yavanna, yeah, like for her, it's the two trees. For me, it's the Silmarils. If you ask me to break these Silmarils, my life is bound to them. You will ask me to basically kill myself. Feanor to- is the most powerful elf. He is the most powerful child of Iluvatar. He's on a different level than the Valar. And even Aule understands what he's talking about. You know, I just think that 
it's pretty narcissistic of the Valar to just think that they are immediately able to to grasp the Silmarils. Well, again, especially since they've asked the elves to come live with them. Absolutely. And that Feanor seemingly was the only one that had this foresight that the trees might be in danger. Yeah, not was, even the Valar. Someone had should that. do something to preserve this light. Yeah. Um because yeah, it's very possible that the elves they could have listened to Almel. Feanor could have been born in Middle Earth and lived over there. Melkor they would have maybe eventually released and still would have tried to destroy the two trees, and they wouldn't have had the Silmarils to like ask to rekindle in the first place. But yeah, so we're here. Um, I still. I don't even know what I'm saying. Um. <laughs> But then the real kicker is in the midst of all of this, this whole debate over can I use the Silmarils is totally void. Because we learn that messengers tell Feanor that, oh, uh, Melkor came north, he came to your house, he killed your dad, and he stole your Silmarils. Yeah. And... (laughs) um, Oh, fuck. Yeah, so all this debate over can we use the Silmarils or not, it doesn't even matter. But Feanor now feels that, like... If I wasn't here at your stupid party to make peace with this half-brother that well, I because hate... because he's been in, ex- in exile. Yeah, ever since he drew the sword on his brother, he's been in exile. Um, with his father. Yeah. Like, he's been right with him. Yeah. And so he's just like, if I wasn't here at this party to, like, reconcile with my half-brother, who I hate... Um, I could have been at my father's house. And the, the text does make this note that, like... Yeah, Feanor thought he could avail to little more than just, like, die next to his father. Which is probably what would have happened. Melkor probably would have just killed Feanor, sure. too. Um, but that would have been a greater a greater fate than having your Silmarils stolen. Then, well, then to be, like, parting with the Valar while your father's getting killed. Yeah. Um, and so I think this is something we don't talk enough about Feanor, is that he loved his father. Absolutely. It says, like, almost more than any other elf loved their father. Um, and his father definitely played favorites and loved him. Yeah. And, uh, so that, that's, that's where I also feel really bad with Fingolf. And I'm just like, clearly Finway, like, favored, uh, I mean, and, It's and very I, Denethor, Faramir, and Boromir. Absolutely. You know? That's absolutely how that relationship comes to fruition in The Lord of the Rings. But, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are Feanor critical. And I totally understand it. He, like, fucks up a lot. And we haven't even gotten to the whole of it yet. But it's important to remember that he was, like, the most elfiest elf that ever elfed. Right. And, like, the he's the epitome of the elven existence. Or at least of the Noldor existence. Of the Noldor. I would say. Yeah, Yeah. I I, I agree. Yeah. But Um, it's, like... Those other elves, yeah, wind their way back to the wh- cages of the Valar, <laughs> right. if you know what I and, mean. And we'll you know? get there, but uh, no, totally. And I just, I wish in this whole story, I mean, this is what launches the War of the Silmarils, yeah, is to reclaim the Silmarils. But I wish people understood. Also, Feanor kind of wants revenge and justice for the murder of his father, absolutely. Um, which I think is a very relatable, um motivation 
Sure. That I, I think a lot of people see Feanor's motivations as a little too lofty. It's like, oh, his, his three divine jewels. Too egotistical. Right. But it's just like, literally murder didn't exist until his father was murdered. Yeah. Um. So I think we got to like give him a little bit of space here. And no. understand that he, <laughs> from his point of view, he blames the Valar for pulling him away from his father he's also, in the time of his father's He's murder. also dealing with all of these people who their only father is Iluvatar, the father of everything, who is unkillable. <laughs> like, so they don't understand they the can't concept. Understand. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, if they can't understand evil, then they can't understand um, the death of your father. No, <laughs> you know? not at all. Um, so... I, yeah, I just, I try to keep that in mind going forward with Feanor as a character, which really adds to just the tragedy of him. Honestly, he, like, he, he does descend into madness and, uh, (laughs) uh, honestly, like, maybe dabbles in evil, um, but. I'm here for it. I, I think it's very understandable to see where he's coming from. I, I don't agree with all of his pride, but uh, some of his anti-Valar sentiment, and especially his, like, I'm going to pursue Melkor to the ends of the earth. Like, I understand that to a T. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, yeah, um, this leads to our last chapter here of the flight of the Noldor, which I, I know we've said earlier, like, we're getting into the meat of this. Like, this is the meat of Feanor's story. Um, how he convinces an entire people to leave paradise on a, like, probably... A hopeless quest of revenge. Um, the scene of like all the uh, Noldor gathering in the court of Tyrion in torchlight because there's no light anymore. Um, Feanor giving this impassioned speech. His seven sons leaping to his side and drawing their red swords shining red in the torchlight. It's such a good scene. Let me put it this way. You just put down the copy of the Silmarillion because you thought you were done. But this is the the chapter where we get the best quotes from Feanor that are just absolutely fucking oh, epic. I know. Um, as I mean, as we know, he's a skilled uh, orator. He, cr- he created an alphabet. No, literally the the main language that the elves use. He created. He created. It. I, I love that these chapters start with like, oh, and in this time, this one elven dude created the alphabet. <laughs> And then they're like, and then and here's this guy, Feanor. He improved it and made a new, better one. Yeah. That we now use. Yeah. It's just like, we don't even use the old dude's shit. I mean, I get it. He like does a lot of shitty shit. But give me a break. This guy is so overpowered. He, he, his. He created the Silmarils. He created this whole new alphabet. He created the Palantir, which we see has a huge impact on the Lord of the Rings in the third age of Middle-earth. He's like, I just We're pre-first age right now. I don't even have like a comparison to him because if we were to compare him to like Western mythological, uh, like Judeo-Christian roots, I mean, he'd be like five or six different characters. I mean, he's like- a mix of like Lucifer and Prometheus and Cain and like, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty He's wild. He's so powerful. And, and I think, you know, and I think what, again, what Tolkien's trying to get at is he's a little too big to judge. 
Totally. Um, he does a lot of bad things, but he also did a lot of great things. And in the grand scheme of things, which is where the Valar are dealing with and Iluvatar, it's hard to say. And something that really resonates with me about this is that, I mean, I think it's it's not a coincidence. He does a lot of big things, and that's why he does a lot of bad things. Right, yeah. He's not a Valar. You can't get involved on that scale without the temptation to fall. No, he's not a Valar who's singularly focused. He is an elf. He's a child of Iluvatar who has all the potential. The full experience of reality. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he's he's able to to truly peak and truly fall. Exactly. And that's his role. <laughs> um. So basically at this point, he's on a war path for Morgoth. He says, oh, by the way, he names Melkor Morgoth. Yes. The, 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 <laughs> he's the reason we call him Morgoth. The black enemy, the dark enemy, the great foe of the world. Like, I, lo- I love Feanor. I'm sorry yeah. to anyone listening to this who doesn't love Feanor, but I'm I not. love Feanor. We haven't even got to his, I mean, we've, the Silmarils, but I'm, we haven't even got to his greatest hits yet, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're right. So he gives this great and passionate speech. Um, in which I think it's, uh, given Tolkien's relationship uh, to the geopolitical nature of Europe in the 1900s and the fact that his sons fought in World War II um, against Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler, I love that decades before he's already warning us of these great orators these great people that are able to inflame the passions of the people um, and how they, you know, can maybe influence people to do not so good things. I mean, this is like literally in the 19 teens to 1920s, he's writing this decades before Adolf Hitler's rise to power. Right. But yeah. So now all the Noldor are like, yeah, fuck the valor. They're just keeping us here caged in. Let's Middle Earth. We can have realms. We can rule and make Middle Earth as beautiful as Valinor. And honestly, not untrue. The Valar probably shouldn't have invited the elves to be in Valinor with them. You know, like to know a god is like a pretty daunting thing. Well, to know godliness without being a god yourself and be is taught dangerous. be taught their crafts. Yeah, exactly. And be taught their waves, but but also be alien to their ways as well. I like to think of it as a human. Like, you, like, teach your pets all these tricks until your pets start, like, taking over. <laughs> and then you're like, wait, no, 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 no. You're, no, no, no. you're supposed you're to be a pet. A pet. Give and me it, your Silmarils. <laughs> exactly. And it's just like, yeah. well, what do you expect? Um, well, now Feanor is just like, well, we got to. Uh, we get gotta, the fuck out of here. We got to get to Middle Earth. Yeah. And there's a huge sea dividing us. Let me go talk to these sea elves. Ugh. Maybe I can convince the the Teleri to give me some of their their boats, and um, and maybe they will be. Maybe they'll see things from my point of view that the Valar are just keeping us. Because also the Teleri are not like the Vanyar. No. Um. You know they're actually more disconnected from the Valar than even the Noldor. They're still like living on the shores on the outside of the Polori Mountains, you know. In they're trying to live in starlight. Um. So, Feanor thinks maybe I can convince them to join our cause. So, like any reasonable man, he goes to talk to their king, <laughs> King Olway. Yeah. Who, by the way, I think we should 
mention is the brother of King Thingol. Again, yes. the host of the Teleri was separated right. when they left Middle-earth. Thingol rules the Teleri in Middle-earth, known as the Sindar. Alway rules the remaining Teleri in Valinor. Right. And always just kind of like, all right, man. You know, these Silmarils, I know they're important to you, but like our ships are just as important. Okay. I totally understand what he's saying here. I get that to him, his ships are just as important as the Silmarils are to Fanor. But the, the fucking Silmarils are pretty fucking important to the Valar. Like, it just, it goes so far fucking beyond Well, it, it's funny to me that the, the Silmarils are described as like, the fates of Arda are trapped in there. Air, fire, and water are trapped in, in the Silmarils. The, the fates of the world. Are the fates of the world trapped in your boats? No, I don't think so. No, your fucking boats they're are just boats, boats. And I'll give they're, them back to you when I'm nice fucking boats. done with them. They're nice boats. They're the best boats that surely ever existed. But at the end of the day, they're still just fucking boats, man. Dude, this is the part where I go full Fanorian. Well, well, here's my thing. Here's here's my thing. They act as if, well, we know eventually Fanor burns the ships. Um, <laughs> and destroys them. At this point, that's not even on the table though. No, no, no. He's like, "Can I borrow your boats?" Here's- like he can give them back. It's not like they're now Feanor's. Feanor is a passionate guy who starts out very reasonable. And then every fucking person in his fucking world destroys every, like, common expectation or he has. Or every compromise he's willing to make. He's like, I'm I'm here. I, I need to kill Melkor. I need to get to Middle Earth. I need Earth. you guys all on my I side. I need you guys to be behind me. Yeah, and yeah. everyone's like, mm, fuck you. I'd rather take care of my swan ships, which I'm never going to sail across the sea because I'm super happy here I'm just going to use these ships to sail back and forth between Tol Arisea and Alqualande. Okay. I'm going to sail around this bay my entire existence. And like these boats will never get any further use. And he's basically like, mm, let me think about that for a second. So he goes into into solemn thought, and then he's like, "You know what? I'm just, just gonna take them." He just gets on the boats and he takes them. So yeah, I I gotta say, like, I'm usually pretty like anti manway, but what I'm really realizing is like, the worst character in the Silmarillion is Olway. He sucks. He wasn't even willing to wait for his brother Thingol. They were like, his own people were like, but like we can't move on. Thingol's like lost in the woods and Alway was like he was quick to be gone it was like that's his biological brother and he was like fuck you I'm out I agree Alway not a big fan no good yeah so again it's just like I'm like he has no understanding of like context I'm not into his whole deal can I just say that any other like creator of a thing telling me hey well this thing that I created was just like when you created that thing. First of all, it's like a 50-50, maybe less chance that I'm going to relate to what you're saying in that moment, right? Just because of egotism. Yeah. (laughs) But like, especially given the circumstances. Yeah. The fucking Valar want 
the Silmarils to like restart the light on Valinor. Right. <laughs> They're not asking the Tellery for their fucking ships. They don't care. They don't give a shit. Can, can, can their ships rekindle the two trees? No. No. <laughs> so it's actually not quite the same. It's not quite the same. Um, also, no one has died for these fucking ships yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and go on. Yeah. So Fader just says, well, like, I'm taking your ships. And they're just like, no, you're not. He's like, okay, well, I'm taking your ships. How many of you do you want to die for that? Well, he doesn't even say that. He just takes the ships. Yeah. He just mans the ships and his sons. And he doesn't threaten them. He just does it. Textually, he doesn't threaten he, he them. He knows I am morally he in the right here. takes the ships. So I'm going to do it. Um, no, and then they fight back and... And they don't even have weapons. Well, here's, yeah, again, here's where my full Feanor apologist is going to come out. We know the Noldor are more war crafty than they any other... They have created weapons. They have smithed swords. They're the smiths of the elves, yeah. essentially. And Melkor has gone about setting the houses of the Noldor against each other, so they're all forging their own arms in case of war... They're the most ready to go to war and spill blood. The Teller just have some bows, and they're not very heavily practiced in matters of defense or anything like that. But! But they drive Feanor and his sons off three, three times. times! Earlier on in, I think, of Feanor, we hear that no one changed Feanor's mind by counsel, and none by force. Yeah. This is force. And yet they're still driving Feanor back three times. Which to me tells me that he wasn't really trying to kill them. If no. Feanor wanted to kill the Teleri, not one of those damn sea elves would be alive. <laughs> no, he'd be across the, the yeah. sea. He would have reclaimed the Silmarils by now. Yeah. Um, it's not until Fingon and his father Fingolfin roll up that they see a fight happening with their kin. And they think that the Valar have instructed the Teleri to stop them from going. And so they're like, Fingolfin has already committed himself. I'm going to follow my brother with whatever you do. So he's like, whatever, I need to follow through and defend my kin. And it's only now that they really start killing a lot of the sea elves. So I don't know. I see a lot of the kin slaying the, the fault on uh, Fingon and Fingolfin. It's totally placed on And honestly, Feanor was probably the most restrained of all of the princes 100%, of the 100%. Um, I, I do agree with that. So, yeah, but this is, again, Feanor's biggest sin. But, you know, he is punished for that. And that's another reason I don't fucking feel bad for, like, being sympathetic to the Feanorian plight. He was punished for the next fucking millennia, you know, like. Well, they say that, like, you know, the rest of y'all can maybe return, but Feanor, you're banished, which I guess is. I don't get it. Fair. Fair. Yeah, to these people who have never seen war or death. Worth keeping in mind, no one here has seen death yet, and that, like. I think we need to realize how far back in time this is and how mythological this event is. This is what precipitates all war in Middle-earth. Yeah. Which lead, and Middle-earth is just our world in ancient times. So this is what precipitates all war, essentially. Right. Is the Oath of Feanor. Well, um, it's sort of uh, 
like a case of where like the actual thing you did, it was bad. But since it was the first time that such a bad thing was done, you're going to be punished really hard. Harder than anyone. Yeah, harder than anyone yeah, who could it's ever like do anything like that. just kind of making like an that. example out of him because yeah. he was the first to really rebel against the gods in this way. But he succeeds and gets the ships. <laughs> um, yeah. And he sails them north, but it becomes increasingly clear that they don't have enough ships to take the entire host across the sea at once. And Feanor also doesn't believe that anyone can really survive the Helcraxe, the ice bridge that unites Amon and Middle-earth in the north most regions of Honestly, this world. Honestly, I, I will admit the worst thing he absolutely does is that he burns the ships. Well, yeah, he, he strands Fingolfin's host over That's there. That's really fucked up. That That is not okay. He is in full throes of madness. He is now. in full laughs as one face stage. Yes, um, laughs as one face. And no, and I, I mean, I love this scene. I think it gives us the best Feanor line of all time where he says, you know, uh, let those that curse my name curse me still and wind their way back to the cages of the Valar. Let the ships burn. And he didn't even read that, folks. He uh, he just knows that from memory. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that is I mean, the it's, best. it's awesome. Mandos shows up and like curses the Noldor, says, well, f- you know, originally only Feanor and his sons were banned for their oath. But now that you've killed a bunch of sea elves, all of you are banned. And so this is going to be a major plot point going forward throughout the Silmarillion. The elves are kind of like now doomed to Middle Earth. And, um, well, at this point, Finarfin, the youngest of the three brothers, says, I'm actually way too reverent of the Valar to take this path. I'm going to turn back. I just. And so he becomes the king of the Noldor that. Uh, choose to ask for forgiveness. Boo. Yeah. What I love is his kids are like, we're still going on. Um, Finrod and Galadriel are like, uh, we, you know, fuck Feanor, but we still want to rule lands of our own. I dig that. You know, I, I think here's the thing is like the Valar aren't the true creators of this world. I know that they sort of rule over it, but... I think it's fucked up that they ever let the elves really know of their presence in 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 the way that they did, right? They weren't just like, oh, we influenced the world. They were like, come live with us. We're gods. Don't you want to live in paradise, kids? Yeah. And I I really like defy that in them. Um very, so very I very glad you're of you. I just like dig this idea of of these are the children of Iluvatar. The Valar are not the, you know, quote unquote, the children of Iluvatar. They're the thought of Iluvatar. They're the thought of Iluvatar. The children of Iluvatar have a different fate ahead of them. And I really appreciate the elves that do seek that out. Even if they're not following Feanor. Absolutely Which not. again, yeah. again... I don't think Finarfin is a, you know, a great character to focus on because, again, in this chapter, he's out. He's out of this. You don't need to think about Finarfin anymore. Right. But his house is very important. And whereas the House of Feanor is out for, like, revenge and to get what's theirs, <laughs> yeah. the House of Fingolfin is out to, like, 
preserve the Noldor people and like to essentially get justice. I mean, also Fingolfin's father was killed. So the House of Finarfin, they're kind of power. Even though they're the most fair and wise, they're also the least motivated by the Silmarils. They are like... I just want to rule my own lands and not have the Valar looking over my shoulder. Well, I mean, even think of Galadriel in her later iteration. Exactly. I mean, this ties directly into that. Uh, I I hate to, you know, I hate to do this. I'm about to compare to Harry Potter. Okay. And the houses of uh, Hogwarts. Okay, that's fine. Um, (laughs) That's fine. I think outwardly we would maybe see the House of Feanor as like the Slytherins. but Sure. Honestly, inwardly, I also consider them Gryffindor. Gryffindor, what? They're brave and stupid. This but, is the, this is the most millennial thing oh, that we're doing right now. I know, and I'm not exactly proud. Okay, but um, the House of Engolfin, they're just Gryffindor to a T. They are just brave and stupid. Um, Fingolfin, you know, we'll see his later fate, but it's uh, kind of charges off pretty headstrong and just like dies a valiant death, but you know, dead. <laughs> still dead um you know and the fan organ i associate them with pride and like you know they want to regain what's theirs and sure. like and be rival the valar i think the house of finarfin can maybe outwardly look a little hufflepuff maybe a little ravenclaw but they're 100 percent slytherin yeah oh totally yeah they just want to rule and i love that about them that they are the wisest and the fairest but Again, they're the, almost the most power hungry. I mean... They're like, I don't give a shit about your jewels. But like everything you said about Middle Earth sounds love it. pretty cool. <laughs> it sounds pretty cool. And you know, like, and like, oh, like we're not the lowest race there. We would be the highest race. Cool. I'm into that. So Finneron and Galadriel, I respect their hustle. I mean, I'll always say that that moment where Galadriel considers taking the one ring. I mean, that is the culmination of her arc that starts right here. Right. Um, yeah, that is a huge moment in her entire character. And I love that moment. I yeah. honestly wish I got to see that come to fruition, but alas. You got to see eons of history before that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, <laughs> even though Finarfin has turned back, the children of Finarfin have gone on. And Fingolfin has gone on, but all of them are stranded in Amon, whereas Feanor has gone on with the ships. And, well, what I love here, uh, Maedhras, who is Feanor's eldest son, who was always close friends with Fingon, Fingolfin's eldest son, you know, their first cousins. He's like, oh, so we're at least going to bring like him over, right? And Feanor's like, fuck no. Dude, Fanor. He's is... like, let all of them just screw all of them. They were all like bad mouthing me. Like, I don't care. They're all traitors. They're all just like Valar brown nosers. He's full Mad King. He's full Mad King. Um, and well, I think this is important though because the relationship between Mithras and Fingon will be very important going forward. So keep that in mind. That okay. Even though Fanor and the rest of his sons were willing to like forsake all of their kin, Mithras was like. What about Fingon? Um, my my favorite cousin. Um, that will be important later on. Because again, I, the Silmarillion is a story about these groups of cousins in this family. The fathers, Finarfin's already out of the story. Feanor is, sh- will shortly be out of the story soon. And then not long after him, Fingolfin. So the, now we're just left with the children. So 
you know, we're getting into a good transition point once they get to Middle Earth to like the story will now pass to the children of these three brothers. But um, yeah, right here, Fano was like, let the ships burn. Um, I, you know, even at this point where I can be the most, you know, anti, I can possibly be a Fanor. Well, so far. Yeah. I love him. I know. I don't even think I could fix him. I just, I love him. I love him as he is. I love him as he is. I accept And that's true love. I can love him. Um, I'm glad he's a fictional character because, yeah, I don't think I can compete with him. Well, I've dated musicians, so I I think that explains a lot, including you. I mean, yeah, Feanor is just a, an egotistical artist at the end of the day. Mm. As, as is Milkor. Tasty, 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 um, And tasty. this is right up your alley. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're left with a pretty, like, bitter, divided bleak. Noldor host. Yeah. We have Feanor who's ready to just press on and just, like, give me them Silmarils. And then we have Fingolfin who, again, I think it's very interesting. Feanor didn't think that the Helcraxi the was crossable. Right. That's why he but stole he, the ships. He does it. But Fingolfin, just out of pure spite, That's is like awesome. leads his people through. That is, he's like, I want to confront my brother again. That's pretty fuck awesome that too. Yeah, I, I'm um, big into that. That's and so, cool. yeah, so Fingolfin as well as Finrod and Galadriel lead the rest of the host onward. As dry as the Silmarillion is, Tolkien's giving us these juiciest of emotions, right? Like, yeah, these characters at play right now are just like at their most based, primal, reactive yeah. moment, and I, I love it. I gotta yeah. say, I love it because I'll say, not... get ready for a little bit more of a slowdown in a little bit. I'm and, sure, and then like halfway through again, from then on, it's great. It picks up. Yeah. Um, but again, I think there's a slow beginning, and then it gets to this part. And then between the journey to Middle-earth, it gets back into a slower beginning to that. And then from then on, it's like, it, it, it's fucking fantastic. So we'll be looking forward to that in the next uh, few episodes to come. Oh my god, we're so close to the end of this big old reading list. I know, it's gonna be like a cool thing to look back on and be like, we read through it all, and here's our thoughts. I know, it's pretty Even like, regardless of the podcast, I'm just like, I'm glad that we have our thoughts down. So... Next week, we'll be talking about chapter 10 of the Sindar through chapter 17 of the coming of men into the West. And I just can't believe we've gotten this far. You I know, know, I know we've is... said this like almost every episode, but it's just like, this is the most efficient I've ever read through <laughs> Tolkien before. Yeah, if if you're listening to this and you're just like, wow, they really freak out over their reading schedule. It's just because like William and I do not achieve things this orderly ever. And I know there have been a few times where episodes end up like being released a few days late. Wow. Still A plus for us. Oh, my God. You can subscribe to listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on our Twitter at HalfAsWellPod. Or you can check out our website at HalfAsWellPodcast.com, where we have our reading schedule posted. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half, Half As, As Well. well.